We've been having quite a bit of fun over here at the EdSearch office with our favorite new tool, Periscope. Not like a submarine periscope, like an app. Yeah, MJ, thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. (laughs) Michael, who fans of our podcast will recognize, has been getting really into Periscope, and I have to say, it's a fun way to hear questions and thoughts from all our listeners and readers. Uh, It it is definitely a really fun way to spend lunch, as we did today. (laughs) It's true. And listeners, if you're interested, check out the EdSearch Twitter to see when we'll be Periscope scoping next. And welcome to the EdSurge podcast for the week of June 1st through June 5th. We'll move into our deep dive in a minute, but first, the news. Is popular tool ST Math really deserving of all the hype? This math tool, which is a product of nonprofit Mind Research Institute, has received a lot of praise and support over the years. But personally, I wanted to hear from educators themselves as to whether or not it's changing the way that math is taught. Here are the brass tacks. Most of the teachers that we interviewed were positive about the content delivery itself, saying that they liked the conceptual approach of STMath in the classroom. Essentially, STMath relies on teaching kids through visuals instead of words. However, the administrators were less than enthused about the data dashboard, as well as the fact that there tends to be a slower response rate when users request changes to the platform. Now, there's no perfect product, but as the article showed, there's always room for improvement. It's now possible to become a Teal Fellow and legally drink. The fellowship, founded in 2011 by Peter Thiel to support aspiring entrepreneurs 20 years old and under, announced its latest class and a few changes. Applicants up to 22 years old are now eligible and will be accepted on rolling admission. Head to edsearch.com for more on whether the fellowship, which has supported edtech entrepreneurs, including Thinkful's Dan Friedman, Zaption's Charlie Stigler, and oncologist Dale Stevens, really offers an alternative to an elite education or just an addition to it. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has rolled out its first set of APIs for developers to build tools that can be accessible to HMH's community of more than 50 million educators, students, and parents. Brooke Colangelo, Chief Technology Officer at HMH, told EdSurge, quote, This gives us an opportunity to connect with EdTech startups, with APIs being the Velcro that allows people to connect with our company and customers, end quote. Now I've got a question for all you listeners and for you too, MJ. Would you rather have access to broadband internet or to a phone line? Um, to, well, I, I don't think I can really choose because, to be honest, I don't know how I could survive without either. Yeah, I think Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler would agree with you. He's proposing a change to Lifeline, which is the federal program subsidizing advanced telecommunication service. The change would let low-income households choose to use the funding to cover broadband costs in addition to phone lines. The FCC will vote on his proposal in July. Last week, we talked about how Jim Shelton, former deputy secretary at the U.S. Department of Education, is shifting over to work as chief impact officer at 2U, as well as the four questions he asks himself to guide that career transition. But how does 2U differentiate itself from other MOOC providers anyway? Well, CEO Chip Pauchek points to a sense of community and student support services, and also explains the 2U degree that he himself is working on. And lastly, for our weekly kachings. Congratulations to all the companies who raised funding this week. San Francisco-based Maker Media raised $5 million from Obvious Ventures, Rain Ventures, Azure Capital, OATV, and Floodgate. 
Maker Media promotes the maker community through a range of channels, including social network Makerspace, Make Magazine, Maker Fair, Maker Shed, and Makezine. Boulder, Colorado-based Sphero, which offers programmable toys to help kids learn to code, and created the Star Wars BB-8 Android, raised $45 million in a round from Mercado Partners, Disney, and Foundry Group. And Pittsburgh-based Duolingo raised $45 million in a round led by Google Capital, with existing investors Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, New Enterprise Associates, and Union Square Ventures also participating. Duolingo's app that teaches languages while translating the internet is currently the most downloaded in the education category on iTunes and the Google Play Store. It's that time, ladies and gents. On to the in-depth portion of our podcast, where we get into the nitty-gritty of a story or debate. And we've got a great one for you this week. Whether you prefer Chromebooks or iPads, Google Play or iTunes U, Androids or iPhones, it's time to bring supporters from both sides together live to argue the merits of their respective device providers. And we decided to bring that argument to this week's podcast. This Thursday, entrepreneurs and educators alike are coming together to engage in a lively debate. And what's the topic of conversation? Google versus Apple, whose education products reign supreme. I would encourage more schools to go Google because it allows the work that they're doing to live beyond that class period, to live beyond that unit, to live beyond that year. That's the voice of James Sanders, former teacher and fan of Google in the classroom. Even though as a consumer, he prefers Apple. Yeah, so my name is James Sanders. I'm currently the chief innovation officer at EdTech Team. Uh, my main project right now is building this product called uh, Breakout EDU. I'm, I'm at heart an Apple fanboy but I believe that Google products are are better suited for education. The unique thing about James is that he's actually been using Google in the classroom for quite a long period of time. In a galaxy far, far away, Google decided uh, back in 2010 that they were going to try to build a computer and had never done anything physical before like that. The stars aligned and Google ended up choosing my little school in Los Angeles as the first place to ship their prototype Chromebooks, the CR48s. the school decided that I should be one of the first to use them in the classroom. And long story short, I've been working with Google you know, ever, ever since. I'm an Apple boy for myself, but I believe Google's the right choice for anything in the classroom. So you've probably heard this argument in EdTech circles before, but not everyone is the biggest Google fan. In fact, one outspoken educator believes that more schools need to go Apple. Why? When I think of Apple products, I mean, they're, they're beautiful. Basically, what they're doing is they're designing a product that is a wonderful user experience. And I respond to that. That's Diane Darrow, an Apple distinguished educator and big fan of using Apple products in the classroom, especially at her school in San Jose, California. Technology just completely gets out of my way so that I can get to the ideas that matter. And that might be teaching a kindergartner how to read, because that's what's really the most important thing. Now, in both cases, James and Diane touched on what they thought were huge assets to the Google and Apple learning environments, the device of choice. In one case, the iPad, and in the other case, the Chromebook. However, their reasons for why one device might be more usable than the other differed, with Diane focusing on the benefits of having a truly mobile device. Wearable technology. We want our tech to come with us, and just like I don't want it to be in the way when I'm trying to figure out how to make something, I don't want it to be in the way of my life. Diane also loves just how much she can do with her students on the iPad, especially when it comes to exploring their creative sides. I was able to, through this one device, have kids filming and photographing and writing and then getting in and doing some reading. And I took it to field trips. We photographed, we interviewed people. 
it did everything, everywhere, anytime. And that was, that's important. On that point, James actually agreed, sharing that Apple has the upper hand when it comes to content. But it's not all black and white, he says. Teachers need to consider exactly what they want their kids to be producing before they choose to go either Apple or Google. And ask yourself a series of questions. You know, do you anticipate them writing a lot? You know, physically writing papers, writing blog posts, writing their thoughts out? If the answer is yes, you should be looking for something with a keyboard. Pretty soon we'll see the, the Android for Education or Play for Education start to catch up. But right now the content is definitely Apple. Do you want it to be very shareable? Do you want the students to be collaborating? If the answer is yes to collaboration, if the answer is yes, you want to get the stuff out of the device, um, you're going to want to go Chromebook again. And speaking of Chromebooks, James wholeheartedly stands behind the fact that Google rollouts are easy. He should know. He's done several Google rollouts himself. I've, you know, oversaw deployments of hundreds of Chromebooks, right. and, you know, they arrive, the, some of the console management stuff already installed. You could do a setup in an afternoon. There's this thing called, like, the white glove treatment or the concierge treatment or whatever they call it, but basically the devices come already pre-set up. And by the way, for you educators and administrators out there that are worried about mobile device management, James feels your pain, and he hopes to reassure you if you have Google products. Apple users, unfortunately, he's not so optimistic in your case. For example, if you're trying to deploy a large set of Chromebooks, you have access to things like the Web Management Console. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, it's really easy for you know a tech lady or a tech guy to go in and be able to uh, change different settings on the Chromebooks remotely, add extensions, add Chrome apps, you know, add bookmarks. Whereas on another device, let's say an iOS device or a Windows machine, they need to physically bring that device back um, to resync it. Whether you need service or not, the cumbersome nature of Apple products that James brings up directly disagrees with Diane's point. In fact, what's her solution if you're struggling with an issue on Apple products, particularly if it's a technical issue? If you really want to learn how to use something, you go to YouTube. Diane is actually less interested in talking about Google or Apple and more interested in hearing what works for each individual school or district. There's no perfect device, she says. And at the end of the day, it's up to the users, administrators, teachers, and students, to choose the device that works best for them and whether or not they can afford it. I think what really matters is the vision behind the reason why you want the technology that you're choosing to use. Really what's worth our time is to really care about getting our kids and our schools connected and to have tools in their hands that they can use because the more that we, we prevent students from being able to freely access the internet and to have tools where they can create and they can connect and they can find mentors and they can publish and they can be a part and they can have a voice. I think that is what's really important. Mm -hmm. And the companies that make that happen and make that happen at a cost that, that is affordable to schools, that's the company I care about. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that's it for today. A huge thank you to James Sanders for coming in and speaking with us about Google and for Diane Darrow speaking with us about her affinity for Apple products. If you're interested in more thoughts on how the Google and Apple environments measure up, we invite you to come to the EdSurge Device Debate Meetup at 6 p.m. next Thursday, June 18th at San Francisco's Oric Building. And a big thank you to Omar Nasser, Conrad Wolfram, and all the other writers who contributed to EdSurge this week. And a special thanks to Monica from Listen Current, who has offered us so much thoughtful podcasting expertise. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening and for reading EdSearch. Please reach out because we really want to hear your thoughts on EdTech. 
All you got to do is shoot us an email at feedback at edsurge.com or tweet us at edsurge online. And for even more of this hilarious banter and edtech musings from the edsurge office, join us on Periscope next time. Please, please, please do. In fact, we actually put out an article this week on the implications of Periscope for the classroom. So check it out because we'll be trying some of the suggestions ourselves. All right, Charlie, well, that's it for this podcast. I'm Mary Jo Mata. And I'm Charlie Locke. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.